What is good streaming people? Welcome to Canell and Bell. Danny Cannell, Raja Bell, not here on this Monday. Tommy Tran here guiding you through the next 60 minutes. Got some great things to talk about, and our guests include two-time Super Bowl champion Brian McFadden, where OBJ not feeling Cleveland yet. Matt Schaub, or former, well, teammate back then with Atlanta. I'm going to bring up Matt Schaub a reason later on, but uh, Matt Ryan, of course, feeling good about Atlanta's chances getting back to the Super Bowl. Got our guy Thomas Ronga to talk about the World Cup and why VAR, which was a darling at the Men's World Cup a year ago, under a bit of fire this time around, including other uh, big-time competitions. But first, let's bring in our guy Tim Doyle. Does a great job with Sportsline, with CBS Sports HQ. It's his second appearance on Canel and Bell. And even though this format allows us to be a little bit more cash, Tim is one of the most well-dressed guys in the business. So before we get started, Tim, I, I, I'm going to put I'm going to put an over under on how many suits and sports coats you have. I'm going to go over under fourteen and a half. Uh, it's going to be a dead under. Uh, <laughs> I think the key is the rotation of it all. I think yes. you just got to keep rotating it. Like if you wore something on Monday, you got to give it that proper eight to ten day rest. Little known fact about Brian McFadden: I actually bought all of his furniture. That he left in Chicago for $800, and when I mean every piece of it is crap, every single piece that I bought from McFadden was total crap. BMAC, I want a refund. I'm going to tell B- we're, we're going to talk to BMAC a little bit later about that, and he's also, by the way, with you, one of the well most well-dressed guys that we have, uh, certainly in HQ uh, and, of course, in the industry. So, Tim, we've got a lot to talk about, a few things here, time permitting, of course, and let's start with that Kawhi news out of we the north you know declining that player option yahoo saying he's gonna really kind of give the dinosaurs uh some consideration staying there i mean in all likelihood it's it's either he wants to get back to southern california with the clippers or it's the raptors right is that how you see it right now well i think that the nba sees next season as hey everybody's got a shot you know what i mean with the warriors in flux right now with clay coming off the knee and Durant more than likely not to re-sign there. It's open season. Like, going into every season, it was the Warriors and then everybody else. Now, if you're Kawhi Leonard, if I'm Kawhi Leonard, here's what I do. I sign a two-year deal with a second-year player option. Because next year, the Raptors, Tommy, they can win it again. And if you look at best options for Kawhi Leonard... It's probably staying in Toronto with a team where everyone understands their role. A guy like Siakam's only going to get better. Kyle Lowry is a very solid point guard. Marcus Sowell's still going to be there. I mean, like, next year, it's like, heck, I could stay up here in Toronto and win another championship. Or you go to the Clippers, and then it's like, you know, are they really championship contenders? So I think because the Warriors and where they're at, I think Kawhi Leonard's going to be like, all right, one more year in Toronto's not that bad. And then the second year I have an option, I don't see him making a move. I think at the end of the day, next year, Kawhi is on the Raptors. All right. So you were talking about maybe exploring a shorter time frame, kind of like the KD, the one-on-one with the player option to then explore. Let me ask you this, because you're you're talking about what the landscape of the NBA is and why you know it's up for grabs. And, And teams, of course, and fans like the ones with the Lakers are feeling pretty good about their chances what about Kawhi Leonard if he does, for instance, go to the Clippers, his his potential to to attract another NBA superstar? Is that why you have maybe some hesitation as to whether or why the Clippers would be a good fit? 
Well, now you got Kawhi on the Clippers and LeBron on the Lakers. I mean, I, you feel like you're at the park again, right? It's like, all right, who has the next pick? You know, is LeBron going to get the next guy? Because the Lakers still have room to go out there and sign a max player. If they do that, then they have to sign the rest of their roster to minimum contracts. So would you want to go play with LeBron or would you want to go play with Kawhi? I mean, I think that would be an intriguing storyline in itself. Uh, obviously, I do think that Kawhi, when he went to Toronto, he was like, forget this place. I'm out of here as soon as possible. But then you win a championship. Then you have a famous laugh and you take the city by storm. You can eat for free wherever you want to go for the rest of your career. Hats off to the city of Toronto. Tommy, what a job they have done trying to keep Kawhi there in Toronto. But if he goes to L.A., that would probably be an incredible storyline about him and LeBron. Who could they get in the offseason? I got a funny feeling at the end of the day, Kyrie Irving is going to be playing with LeBron James again out in L.A. Because when I look at Kyrie Irving and what a disaster that was in Boston – he may think the market is hot for him, but I don't think the market's going to be so hot at the end of the day. Well, let me follow up then, since you brought up Kyrie Irving and sort of the Lakers situation. There's there's obviously AD, LeBron in place, and a bunch of other guys, Mo Wagner and Isaac Bonga. I don't even know who Isaac Bonga was before all this stuff went down, and all of a sudden he's, he's put into a, a full screen and a graphic of what the Lakers have left. So there's that discussion of whatever cap money they have left, whether it's the low 20s all the way up to 32.5. And again, there's a lot of moving parts with that. It's sort of the notion of whether they need to go after one more big guy or do you spread that money around because they still don't have a lot of shooting, Tim. If you're Rob Palinka, how do you view it? You mentioned it a little bit right here, the situation out with the Lakers right now. Yeah, I mean, I talked about them bringing in a max guy that seems very Laker-like to just try to go get a big three and then just kind of get a bunch of scrubs around them. I I would go the other way. I I think Kyle Kuzma is not a big three type of guy, but he's sort of kind of ish in the conversation. And you have LeBron and Anthony Davis. Whenever you have LeBron James, you must surround him with shooters, whether it's a Kyle Korver or old Shane Battier or even a James Jones. Like think about those rosters down in Miami, right? He had guys that fit his style of play. That's why what the Lakers did last off season was like, Last Lance Stevenson, like Rondo, um, JaVel McGee, uh, of all those guys, right? I guess McGee made the most sense. But it's like with LeBron, like you want to have that capability to sometimes even put him at the four or the five, but really have him be the point guard. And then you just surround him with four shooters. So that's going to be the recipe, right? You're going to have Anthony Davis in the pick and roll. Like if I'm Rob Polinka, all I'm scouting right now is just knockdown shooters so that the court is spread So you give Davis room to operate down low. You give LeBron room to operate out on the perimeter. All I would go out and do is just pay shooters. I don't think you need another ball-dominant player, but I just have a funny feeling that Kyrie Irving and that market that is out there to sign this superstar is not actually going to exist. So I think at the end of the day, he's going to be wearing a Lakers uniform. That's why, uh, man, when we take a look at the NBA offseason, all of the sort of what ifs and theories and what can 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 happen. Let's uh, I want to pivot slightly here to the Kevin Durant thing as well. And sort of obviously the way he ended his NBA finals with that ruptured Achilles now basically 
out for a year. And if a team is interested like the Knicks or like the Nets in offering a big deal, and even that matter of fact, the Warriors, which he's with, you're kind of getting the redshirt year, right? So he has that decision, obviously, for the $31.5 million player option. But if you're a team not named the Warriors and you were looking at Kevin Durant and now you know he's hurt, is, is it worth the risk of getting the four-year deal knowing that you're basically redshirting that first year? Yeah, I think if you're a fan, you go, well, we got to go sign Kevin Durant. But you got to put your shoes or your hat under that GM who's currently there. If you're a GM that has a lot of J.U. ice, as I call it, juice, if you're Bob Myers and you've won NBA championships, even if you're Sean Marks out at the Nets and you've completely 180 the franchise to where you're getting in the playoffs and now you have a ton of money, like Sean Marks has a lot of juice right now in Brooklyn just because he turned that franchise around. That was a disaster when they paid Garnett and Pierce and lost all those draft picks. Now the Nets are in a good spot, so Sean Marks has that J.U. Ice to go out there, sign Durant, and if it doesn't go well, he's not going to lose his job. Like, if you're Scott Perry in the Knicks and you sign Durant and this doesn't go well, like, eh, you're fired. Like, you lose your job. Like, that's do you want to be tied to an older-ish Kevin Durant coming off an Achilles injury as basically your career stamp? I think as a fan, you go, yeah, yeah, sign Durant. But, like, is that really what you want to do? Is that really who you want to tie yourself to? So I think it really depends on the GM and the spot they're at in their career that they can take that calculated risk because that's what it is. You're, you're going to pay a guy just to sit on the sidelines for a year. How motivated is he going to be? I've seen a lot of guys go to New York, hanging out in the meatpacking district, at the Gansworth Hotel, buying $22 drinks. Spending all their money, wasting all their money, getting fat, getting out of shape. Uh, that would actually be me. So I've, I'd be worried to like bring somebody to New York, pay them $35 million a year, and then they're just sitting around chilling all the time. So uh, I do think it matters what type of GM and where they are in their career to bring in a guy like Durant. So let's stay in the Big Apple, and then we'll also sort of include – Brooklyn in the landscape too. Uh, we, you know, we talked a little bit about Kyrie potentially going back out west, and there's a thought at one point in time, of course, that maybe Kyrie to the Knicks and maybe Kyrie to the Nets. And obviously, there's a situation there, one of many that you know that if he has that 21.3 million dollar player option, that he's going to you know decline. The Nets may be a shooter there, D'Angelo Russell. What do you make of that potential matchup and situation there with the Nets? I love D'Angelo Russell. I mean, I said. Four years ago, D'Angelo Russell was going to be Steph Curry 2.0. Now, that's not going to happen, okay? But he was an all-star last year, and it seems like him and Kenny Atkinson have figured it out. And Kenny Atkinson is getting the best D'Angelo Russell. I would rather have D'Angelo Russell than have Kyrie Irving, because Kyrie Irving's won an NBA championship. And I know guys that play with Kyrie Irving in the offseason. I know guys that have played on his roster in the NBA. He's not easy to play with because he's so ball dominant. I think a guy like D'Angelo Russell is still willing to work, show you that what went on in LA wasn't really him, and that he is entering the prime of his career. Like, he's still got that chip on his shoulder. With Kyrie, it's like, yeah, he's got the Uncle Drew commercials. He's already proven himself as a superstar in the NBA. So if I had to pay between Kyrie Irving and D'Angelo Russell, in my eyes, it's not even close I would go out there and pay D'Angelo Russell. I think he's the better long-term investment 
in a city like New York. I want to spend the last few minutes that we do have in this segment. Again, Tim Doyle joining us, Northwestern great here on CBS Sports HQ and Canelo Bell. The, the draft, right? Obviously, you do a great job with our draft coverage on CBS Sports HQ. There are guys up in Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, preview shows are by buddy Chris Hassel. Zion, John Morant, RJ Barrett, after it obviously played out that way and then some of the the tomfoolery that kind of happened with all the trades uh on, on draft night out of the three who are you the most bullish on yeah i love john morant i have two children tommy joe and rose if i have a third child ja and morant is going to be the middle name like you have to take a celebrity's name like if you're going to go like richard it's got to be like richard gear tran or like richard simmons Tran, like take the whole celebrity's name and just tack on your last name. But what I love about John Morant is basketball IQ. If you know how to play, that actually negates athleticism. That's more valuable than athleticism. Oh, by the way, this guy's a 45-inch vertical. We all saw his tomahawk dunk in the tournament. I think he's as athletic as a Russell Westbrook, as a Derrick Rose before Derrick Rose got injured. But it's his passing ability, how he makes guys better. He averaged over 10 assists a game. Now you're going to say, oh, the Ohio Valley, that's not really a competition. When he played Auburn and Alabama, he averaged over 30 points a game and 10 assists. And, oh, he doesn't shoot that well. Ask Florida State. He made his first five threes against them. I think he's going to end up being the best player in this draft. But you had to take Zion, number one, just from a business perspective. He's going to sell a lot of tickets. You know, the ticket office there in New Orleans was acting like Oprah for crying out loud at Oprah's studio. You get a car and you get a Zion and you get a Zion. That was the right move, obviously, taking Zion number one. But I think John Morant is going to be a transformational type player. And when you talk about the big three of this draft, it was really a big two. I think R.J. Barrett's going to have his struggles there. I think he's going to be a volume shooter. Not to say he's not going to average 15, 16 points a game. I don't think he's going to be transformational like a jaw, like a Zion. I think both those guys have NBP capabilities. I think RJ Barrett's going to be an okay pro. He's going to have to improve his three point shooting. Only shot 30% from three in college, but Ja Morant, he's the best jaw since jaw rule, baby. I have a good follow up on, on Ja Morant, but I want to first off talk about RJ Barrett. And then you mentioned some of the things you did not like about his game. What happens, though, in New York, obviously a team right now that doesn't have all the pieces together, but the, I think the, one of the arguments was that he didn't obviously have the shooting at Duke. If he gets the shooting in New York, how much uh, does that help him evolve as a young player in the league? Yeah, great point, Tommy. He has to become, like, knocked down. Like, you got to become, like, 38% from three. So that's just going to come down to work. Obviously, the line is further back, but he's going to have to become – like, when you're open, that shot has to go in. Like, let's be honest, he struggled from the free throw line and missed some big free throws in the NCAA tournament. So I just question the consistency. I think he's going to be able to score, but, like, bullying guys like we're watching on video and just putting your head down and extending that right arm and scoring with the left hand, like, that stuff doesn't work in the NBA. You want to know why? Because those guys are six foot nine and have 7'2 wingspans. So... I have no idea what the identity of the Knicks is. Like, you just drafted Kevin Knox. Now you have R.J. Barrett. Like, two guys that sort of kind of do the same thing. Uh, then they're going to go out there and sign, like, a free agent. I think you have to figure out who you are from an identity standpoint. But R.J. Barrett, Tommy, you're spot on. He's going to have to become a consistent outside shooter if he's going to be a big-time NBA player.
Tim, I got to wrap things up, but I wanted to follow up one more on John Morant because you were so on him. I feel, though, like we stopped talking about him after the tournament. We just kind of pegged him as that number two pick and kind of just put it to bed. What is his box office potential? You mentioned Zion. Give me about a minute or less here about the John Morant box office potential. Okay, I'll ask you. Who's the greatest player in the history of the Memphis Grizzlies? Mike Conley. Did they trade him immediately? Now they're looking, right? <laughs> He's already gone. Utah. He's Utah. They're looking, and they sent him to gone. Utah. I know. Like, like they were like, who's our greatest player? Mike Conley. Thanks so much for your service, Mike. He's we also a little bit older, right Tim. Bye-bye. See you, buddy. Yeah, but he's still I, – I mean, I get it, and he's got two years on his deal. But still, it's like you didn't, like, hold on to your icon. You were like, all right, Mike, see you later. The, the door is actually around the corner there. That's how high they think of John Morant. I get it. It's going to be a new franchise and a new model and a new kind of brand you're going to have there in Memphis. But they said goodbye to their greatest player ever because they love Ja. The only thing I don't like about the Ja is the Rick James haircut. <laughs> like, Rick James was awesome in the 70s. But like, you still got the Rick James look? I mean, come on, man. It's Either braid that or throw it into a fro or something. But the Rick James, I don't know about that. He'll have time maybe in summer league to take care of that before uh, this season. <laughs> Tim Doyle, hey, Tim, great stuff, man. Good catching up with you, especially in this format. Keep grinding. Keep killing it out there. And uh, we'll talk soon, man. Thanks. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount+. Plus. Paramount+, Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. Baseball has begun, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Sample, every Monday through Saturday as we deliver all of your fantasy baseball needs in just five minutes. We'll break down the biggest performers, news, and prospects who could make an impact this season. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. Back here on Canel and Bell, Tommy Tran filling in for Danny and Raja. I got Tomas Rong in here, our soccer analyst slash pundit. TR, how are you? I'm doing fine. First time in, in the room? Uh, second time. Okay, second time. You and Tim Doyle. So lucky me here. <laughs> second time with Tommy. So, uh, we got TR who does a fantastic job, uh, of all our soccers, obviously with MLS and English Premier League and La Liga. But of course, uh, the focus is, is the Women's World Cup right now. And you and I did many in HQ. Uh, segments where we talked about how well VAR was received last summer at the Men's World Cup. It was really every single right move. I got to tell you, TR, with this tournament and even some of the other major competitions, specifically with a goalkeeper coming off the line, we're starting to see some criticism of VAR right now. Just, just give me your perspective and your thoughts. Listen, if you brew VAR powder, all right, that keg is going to explode. Reason being is they introduced it six days before the Women's World Cup. And yes, a lot of coaches won that VAR. But you know what? Most of the women that play in domestic leagues have never encountered VAR. They don't even know what the science means like. And, and, and maybe Cameroon as an example. Very confusing. Uh, and, and I'm telling you, we're all guilty of murdering this, this game, quite frankly. You know, this keg just blew up. And good luck to FIFA getting this VARS. I call it VARS, all right, back in its cage. They they are using this World Cup to really uh, establish a new normal. And, and as you can see, they've already made rule changes. The goalkeeper now, when she moves early on a penalty, 
will not get a yellow card because a second yellow card might be a red. You can't make a substitution. That means a fuel player needs to go in goal. It will be retaken. Uh, and, and some people have argued that the goalkeeper should have uh, an ability to do that. But as I said again, it, it, it's killing what makes soccer to me, so beautiful. And that's the celebration, Tommy. Sure. The celebration of France after scoring a legitimate goal to go up one nothing, right? Being looked at by VAR, not for 30 seconds as in France, not for a minute, but several minutes, and then realizing that a good goal actually is being taken away from you, claiming that the goalkeeper had total control of the ball, which France wasn't Brazil, yeah. the case, exactly. And, and you look at, at some of the other decisions that have been, have been made, uh, the spontaneity of the celebrations, Tommy, of scoring a goal, of making a big-time save, of making a big-time tackle. It almost seems like every tackle, every save, every goal is being looked at by VAR. And yes, there have been some moments where VAR has been right. But there's been more moments in this Women's World Cup where VAR has been wrong. So the debate of VAR is going to eliminate every question right. that we have about Rules? No, it's not. It's attitude that is confusing coaches, players, and obviously the public as well. Before we move on, then, by the way, VAR, video-assisted referee, which is basically replay, and and, and which is, TR, of course, has his term now. Vars. Okay, so look, we know it's not going away. So if you were the czar of VAR, uh, what can be done? Like, if you were sending down a memo for the rest of the tournament, what would some of those directives be? Well, the directives would be, obviously, to, which they did. Uh, I've been in several World Cups, once as an assistant coach in 98 uh, with the senior team, and, and four under-20 World Cups. You meet with your team, with the referees, before before the tournament. They spell out exactly what they want to emphasize in this particular World Cup. A few World Cups ago, all of a sudden, it was tugging inside the 18-yard box, holding any kind of jersey. Anytime we see this here, it will be a penalty. You go back two decades, following from behind or is an automatic yellow card. But it seems like here, as I said again, it was instituted six six days before the tournament. Not a lot of time. I've spoken to several people, including Jill Ellis. And Jill says, listen, we're used to it. But I've seen some of our opponents that for the first time encounter a VAR decision, the stoppage of time, the referee walking over to the sideline to look at it, not just for 10 seconds, for 20, 30, or 40. The slow motion makes play sometimes very distorted, Tommy. You know that. Yep. In slow motion, you can argue that, th that there was contact. So it's very hard. The directive needs to be to coaches, A, control your your, your team, it's part of our rules going forward. We'll make decisions from above. We try to expedite it. Um, and in 50-50s, we will go to VAR. I think right now that the referees are using VAR as a great excuse to just say, I might have made a mistake. Let Not me sure. go to VAR. Exactly. And let them make the decision. Oh, so the referees need to be able to manage the game with common sense and use VAR only, only on moments that we all think at home or in the stadium, this is justifiable. All right, we'll see if it's used selectively moving forward Good work, uh, at the World Cup. You mentioned Jill Ellis, so let's segue over to the United States national team taking on Spain, which they played and beat 1-0 earlier this year. Uh, Julie Ertz did not play in their game against Sweden. Alex Morgan came out and was subbed out. They should be fit. Jill Ellis said they should be ready. 
A, how should they help? What are your initial thoughts of the lineup? Well, my initial thoughts of the lineup is it's the lineup that we've seen against Thailand, with the exception that Sarbroom at that time was injured, so she'll be back in the lineup, which she's been the last two games as well. We'll have O'Hara and Dunn on the outside going up and down, converted wingers into fullbacks, you know, that love to attack, which means that in transition, the U.S. needs to be very smart. And there you can see, obviously, the... Not only the goal scorers, but the key players to this team right now. Because you think Ertz is more important than Morgan in, for this in this particular game, Tommy, yeah. with without a doubt. If you're talking about the most important player for Spain that has thirty goals behind her name, that plays her trade at Barcelona is Jennifer Hermosa. Jennifer Hermosa is a traditional number 10, a playmaker, beautiful if you give her time and space on the ball, that can make better players or players around her better, including Jennifer Alexia Putillas, mm. who is the forward. Both play for Barcelona. So you got a false nine and a ten. It's very important. If Ertz can kill, basically, that 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 engine, uh, the intellect, basically, of Spain in midfield, then we have a great chance that, A, Spain will not create any chances. They struggle to score, Tommy, two penalties in a 3-1 win versus uh, South Africa. Zeros in terms of scoring against Germany and China. This team doesn't score many goals. You kill the Achilles heel, which is Hermosa, through Ertz, and then allow Ertz still to spring after winning tackles to get in the final third. She scored a beautiful goal. Yep. Her engine is unbelievable. That stifling pressure, high pressure of the U.S., you know, that starts up front with Alex Morgan and joined in by those wide players as well, uh, Rapino being one of them, will not allow Spain to settle into their tiki-taki, which they also play in the women's side, football, but they prefer the first World Cup emerging a nation in Spain, but this should still be a comfortable win for the U.S. and Jill Ellis. My Americans are favored by three to one, maybe three and a half to one, depending where you're shopping around. And then that match again at noon Eastern here on Monday. The winner is going to get France. France, one of the top tier teams, of course, and the host nation. I, I do want to ask you, sort of the the not the task at hand for the Americans, but just this this French side. They were, you know, they won, of course, in extra time against Brazil. I don't know if I've seen the full French experience in terms of their full potential yet. Yeah, that could be scary for the Americans moving forward, but what did you make of their match with Brazil? Uh, you're absolutely right. They've played four games right now, all four games somewhat unconvincing. You know, uh, Serves, though. Sometimes you're at home. You're the host nation. Right? Absolutely. This is a, a, a big occasion. This is... They are the favorites. Some of the U.S. players have dubbed them the favorites, the team to beat at home. A An emerging... A nation as well that's been there now for the last two World Cups. It's getting better each and every day, but have underperformed, Tommy. And now the biggest hurdle for them was in front of 50,000 people uh, yesterday against Brazil. A tough win, obviously, in, in, in overtime. But they have been able, as I said again, to get the Ws. The key right now for them is can they just unshackle themselves and play with more freedom because this team has some talent or are they continue to wilt under the pressure of being at home against the U.S. if we get past Spain for a water-mouthing Friday clash <laughs> between France and, uh, uh, and the United States. And France, by the way, they got some power. They strength in the air, pace up front, intelligence in midfield, 
two overlapping fullbacks as well. Very similar in, in stylistically. I still would favor the United States though in that game. And by the way, their captain who scored the game winner's name Henri. Yeah. Not Thierry Henri, but Linda nope. Henri there scoring the game winner. All right, we got time for one more topic and I do want to get to this because uh, we're going to get to the men in, in Gold Cup down the road with HQTR. So I, w- I want to focus with the women here and, and, and end this. Uh, France beat Brazil. And for those who are not super diehards, Brazil has a superstar in Marta, much like Ronaldo and Ronaldinho and Neymar, just the one name with Marta, probably her last World Cup, but she has been in so many. Uh, 2007, 2011 were really probably the, the height of her power. Doesn't come away with a major title again. So where would you rank Marta among some of the game's greats? I rank Marta in the top five, maybe even the top three. And if you talk about a legacy, you talk about a, a woman five World Cups ago, which is 20 years ago, as a youngster at 16, walked into that stage and marveled everybody in a messy like performance. Low center of gravity, small, beautiful. You don't need to be big to play the game, you know, at the skill, not making people as well, daring and pushing the threshold of women's soccer to a level that we've never seen before. Creative, uh, wanting to please the crowd. And, 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 as I said again, what she has in common with Messi in terms of playing, she also has in common in terms of trophies. Messi looking still to win something with Argentina. Martha on her way out now, never done that. But how beautiful. She cried yesterday. She looked at that younger generation. We saw two or three players come in late. Uh, the legs went for Brazil in the second half. A 41-year-old, a 39-year-old, and a Martha as well. They were done, and France took advantage of that. But I will remember Martha, and I will just always smile when that name will come up because she made my day each and every time she touched the ball. What a marvel. All-time leading World Cup goal scorer, both in the men's and women's side. Closer used to be in the men's side. Yep. Now she's there with 17. Pretty remarkable. Bravo. All right, bravo. Speaking of TR, good stuff, man. Good catching up with you. Welcome back to Canell and Bell. Tommy Tran again in here for Danny Canell and Raja Bell. Let's now bring our NFL focus in. I've got two-time Super Bowl champion Brian McFadden joining us. Uh, from his spot, by the way, uh, he has a great man cave with just a few jerseys and hardware behind him. BMAC, good to have you, man. Before we get into all this stuff, I don't know if you, you, you checked in earlier, but we had our guy Tim Doyle. I know you guys sometimes share the airwaves on Sportsline. Tim, and, and it's tough with Tim because we, God, I love him. I don't know, I don't know. I have to separate fact from fiction, but he was sharing a story about furniture in Chicago, something about $800. Does that, that ring a bell at all to you, BMAC? It rings a bell. Yeah, it rings a bell. Uh, we we, we kind of had some uh, professional business outside the lines that we uh, got involved in, and I was able to look out for them a little bit. There you go. Okay. Small world, by the way. You know, you never know who you're going to run into and the things that you have there. So, <laughs> all right, let's let's uh, let's get into the NFL stuff, and we'll start with uh, Odell Beckham Jr. talking about not reaching his full potential with the Giants and, of course, uh, a tumultuous ending to his career out in New York. He's got a fresh start out in Cleveland. What did you make of his comments? You played in the league. Translate that for me. How, how did that resonate with you? Well, basically, I, I I I believe he is mad. He's a bit salty based on how the relationship ended between the Giants and himself. I think he's upset the Giants decided to trade him. In all honesty, I, I would be happy because you're going into a better 
situation as far as overall team success, as far as expectations, the potential. The Cleveland Browns, they're closer to being a playoff caliber team than the New York Giants. But clearly, because he consistently answers questions regarding the New York Giants, that tells me he has not gotten over the fact he's no longer in a New York Giants uniform. So he's throwing little jabs here or there. He's taking shots, not just at the organization, but he's taking shots at Eli Manning. Remember when he first got to Cleveland, the first time catching passes from Baker Mayfield, he said the passes are totally different. Uh, it's a different style of, uh, of, of pass receiving from the quarterback Baker Mayfield than what he's received uh, throughout his professional career when he played in New York. So I don't think he's gotten over the fact of, of not being in the Giants uniform. And because of that, he's going to take shots. Uh, whenever he gets an opportunity to do so. And he certainly had that opportunity. It was an interview with Complex, and I'll uh, read part <clears throat> of that. It said, I quote, I just felt the Giants uh, with them. I was stuck at a place that I wasn't working for me anymore. I felt like I wasn't going to be able to reach my full potential there. Mentally, physically, spiritually, everything I felt capable of doing, I just couldn't see it happening there. So again, BMAC, you're talking about him voicing his frustration, and I think that's understandable. Again, he's changing teams. He's He's a young player in a new setting. Let me ask you this, though, right? What if you are now a teammate of OBJ in Cleveland? Like, what is an adequate amount of time for him to do this? Like, is this it for him? Will you let it bleed a little bit further? Is it before camp? I mean, at what point do you go, you thinking to yourself, okay, we need to start thinking about us in 2019? Well, right when you start training camp. Because when you're starting training camp, your, your focus, your attention should be trying to get together to create something special, dialed in, being focused, you know, no distractions. And right now, it's okay because guess what? It gives us something to talk about. But when training camp rolls around, the only thing current players want the media to talk about is the task at hand, the job at hand. How is your team looking? You know, what what do you need to improve on? You do not want to address or hear things coming from your account regarding your superstar player talking about the past. It's all about the present. It's all about the future. And for him, you know what? New York Giants is over and done. Get over it. Let's move forward. And if you're a teammate, that's what you would like to see your superstar teammate do in Overdale Beckham. It's okay to address Questions because the thing about this is that, Tom, you've been a part of the media for quite some time. If you know Odell's going to give you something to put in your headline regarding the New York Giants, you will ask those questions. You will ask a New York Giants request, uh, uh, related question. But if you know he's moved on from that life, you wouldn't bring anything up Giants related. And the, the reporters, they know he's going to give them something to talk about. And that's why they're asking Giants-related questions because so far he hasn't gotten over the fact he's no longer in a in a Giants uniform. Yeah, still stuff, of course, offseason OTAs, mini camps. But when it gets down to like late July, early August, again, it'll be interesting to see if any of this stuff with the Giants comes up. Uh, and I think in Cleveland, or at least in that locker room, they'd like that to not happen once they get really focused on the season. All right, so that's obviously a, a bit of a micro situation in terms of one team and a player. Let's uh, bring it out a little bit and go macro a little bit with the league finalizing pass interference for this upcoming season. The competition committee has finalized the new rule for reviewing pass interference, opting against several suggested tweaks 
and upholding the wording owners originally approved in March. Again, it's all stemming from that NFC Championship game. BMAC, uh, you've talked about it at length for CBS Sports HQ. How do you how do you view some of the change or at least the amendment near going forward? Well, you know, this is basically the the New Orleans Saints rule, right? What we saw in the uh, the championship game between the New Orleans Saints and the Los Angeles Rams. So clearly, for me, as a former cornerback in the National Football League. I'm okay with this rule, and here's why. Time and time again, when you watch football, especially NFL football, you see flags coming out for pass interference. The defensive back did an ideal job in timing the breakup right when the ball got there. Clearly, he was not too fast. He was right on time, and they still flag him. Now you have the ability to replay or or challenge some of these calls. So I like the fact that Coaches have the ability to do so. And then, of course, you know, the, the, the booth, have, they have the ability to do so as well because I get tired of seeing defensive backs called for P.I. When you look at the replay, you see there is no P.I. involved. And because of that, offenses, they're able to sustain drives, get down to the red area, and eventually put points on the scoreboard. And P.I.s could be the reason why a team could lose or be in position to lose. Big-time example, the Pittsburgh Steelers, when they played the New Orleans Saints, Joe Hayden uh, was involved in a P.I. call. Clearly, it was the wrong call. Guess what? The New Orleans Saints eventually ended up scoring on that drive. Now you have the ability to replay or challenge these calls, and clearly, they will get overturned based on the replay ability. So I'm okay with it. I, I, I really like this call because, for me, P.I.s are basically targeted to defensive players. Time and time again, we see receivers pushing off on defensive backs, pushing off on defenders to create separation. There's no call there. They should be they should be penalized for those type of plays also. But now you have the ability to replay and, and, and challenge a lot of these calls. So I'm all, I'm all for it. I think, you know, I've talked about it, too, with our guy Brady Quinn about this rule. And one of the concerns I think he brought up was sort of like, and it's tough because it might be like a fringe situation when we talk about the timing and the way the rule is constructed. But like Hail Marys, obviously, those are kind of tough to subjectively talk about and review. What, what do you think about that maybe aspect of the rule here or, or potential here on a play like that? Well, how many times do we actually see a Hail, Hail Mary? You know what not I mean? Not often, yeah. Um, not often at all. And if you're involved in a Hail Mary play as a player, you have to remember if you're too aggressive with your hands – there's a good chance the booth could replay the outcome of this play. And as a defender, the last thing you would want to do is be involved in a P.I. call in a Hail Mary attempt. Because guess what? It's a spot file. You know, last time I checked, this is a spot file. And if you're involved in a play in the end zone, that opposes an offense knowing they need a touchdown to win this ball game, get the ball right on the goal, goal, goal line. That's a tough situation to be in, but we really don't see too many Hail Marys, uh, maybe two or three throughout the course of the entire season. So we don't really see a lot of those plays. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see to not see a lot of challenges when it comes to P.I.s, because remember the catch rule when they finally came down with what it, what is a catch was not a catch. We didn't really have too many calls involving the uncertainty if a catch was made or if a catch was not made. So I don't know if we will see a lot of P.I. action as far as challenging these calls. Mm -hmm. But in all honesty, I wouldn't be surprised if we do, because time and time again, we see so many flags call for pass interference. 
And actually, that was not the case. Take me into the locker room, the the meetings that you have, because I'm interested and I think a lot of people would be curious too. Like, for instance, you mentioned, you know, implementing changes. And we know every year there's either a rule change or at least an emphasis on a current rule that the NFL tries to really, especially like the September weeks, the first two, three, four games of of enforcing either it's holding call or, or PI call or something that's new. Do you do you implement sort of tactically and schematically those changes in camp, or do you wait until you see something on the field, then you adjust after week one, maybe after week two? No, you you adjust the start of camp. I wouldn't be surprised based on you know the meetings in March for teams that got an opportunity to participate in OTAs and minicamp start to really uh, get a new feel to the new rules. But training camps, when you have the referees involved, especially in one-on-one opportunities be- between the defensive backs and, and the wide receivers, and then you talk about 707 and, of course, 1111, having the referees involved so now they can start policing what they see on the football field. And that's a great opportunity for the players to get honest reps as far as, you know what, this could be, be potentially a challenge, uh, a, a, a challenge type of play, you know, where, where the coaches could – Good challenger. And I wouldn't be surprised to see the coaches get involved. I mean, when I played the game throughout practice, you never seen head coaches with the red flag in their back pocket. But now with this new rule change when it comes to pass interference, I wouldn't be surprised to see coaches throughout training camp, throughout competitive uh, uh, periods in practice, have the red flag in their back, back pocket. So now they can get adjusted to potentially having to challenge a PI call. So the repetition that you will get involved in referees will be imperative, not to mention the referees knowing exactly how the rules have changed a little bit, being able to call the game in that matter. And the same can be said for, for coaches, like I said, with the red flag and practices. Welcome back. Canell and Bell. You got Tommy and BMAC here to wrap things up here for this hour. So, BMAC, take me back through to your free agency days. You spent the first uh, half of the show talking about NBA free agency. Obviously, like the top dudes are going to get paid, and so their their selections are obviously with the, the max money in front of them. But there are, there's other guys that have to make those decisions. When you were with the Steelers, then opted to go to the Arizona Cardinals, what was that process like? What were some of the things that factored into your decision? Well, it was an exciting time for me, my first time ever uh, being a free agent, uh, we just won the Super Bowl. So I was, uh, you know, I, I was, I was just, it was a good time from the standpoint of being successful as a team and now getting an, getting an opportunity to sign a new deal. So for me, I wasn't the top tier guy. So, you know, of course you had to wait for the big fish to come off the, uh, off the board. Some of the elite quarterbacks that were available, uh, uh, elite wide receivers, elite offensive linemen, then of course the elite defensive back. So, you know, you 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 have to really, watch the clock to say the least as far as monitoring and seeing who signs what where they go and then that open the other opportunities for the other players and that was my situation for me uh you know for me Arizona I knew they were high on me but they wanted to take care of Kurt Warner Kurt Warner was up they wanted to make sure they take care of the big fish and then when they did they did that they were able to focus their attention on myself and other guys so that was the process it was a waiting game you know waiting for Kurt Warner and then waiting for some of the top tier corners that were available I think D'Angelo Hall was a guy that was up uh, around the same time that I was and of course he was the main targeted guy at the cornerback position so once he signed then the domino effect started to happen uh, so for me, Arizona has some other teams, but Arizona was extremely aggressive. 
Ken Wisenhan, a guy that I knew uh, earlier in my career when he was in Pittsburgh, when I first got drafted, Pittsburgh knew me extremely well. I knew him extremely well, and he was definitely high on me and trying to get me to come out to the desert. And, you know, it was a more it was the, the, the difference for me was with Pittsburgh was, you know, just the, the difference in money. Um, didn't I didn't want to leave. And clearly it was a short stay. It wasn't an extended stay. It was a short stay because I ended up uh, getting traded back to Pittsburgh the next year. Uh, but it was just, you know, trying to go capitalize on every uh, dollar that was available for me. And that's what I went and did. Uh, had a year out in Arizona. Uh, great weather. It was a nice Nice uh, change of scenery for me. And then before you know it, Pittsburgh started calling right back. And I'm like, I should have never left. I mean, <laughs> we could have easily found a way to work things out for me to remain in Pittsburgh in the Steelers uniform. Uh, but, you know, you live, you learn. Nice experience for me, though. I, it's something that as a player, every player as far as, you know, baseball, hockey, NBA, NFL, you're trying to get to that free agency uh, timeline to be able to cash in on every dollar available. Yeah, but that's the thing, right? Like with basketball and baseball, they're generally longer deals and you get the guaranteed contract. So when you factor in where you want to live, where you want to play in football, though, it seems like obviously because of the way the, the contract structure you touched upon is like, well, this place is offering more money. Is that like the sentiment of some guys that like, even if it's going to be a year or two away from home, I'm just going to keep my home base, maybe where I live or where I have my fam. But I'm going to go and I'm going to go live in a condo in an apartment and just basically is it about the money or, or do those other sort of uh, other factors actually play in, in an NFL locker room, given the contract structure and the pay structure? Well, it depends on the player. Um, you know, some players, it's about the money. I mean, they would go to no man's land to get every dollar that's available. And then some players might have already cashed in a big payday already in their career and they're OK taking less to go to a better situation. So it depends on the player for me. That was my first time, you know, hitting uh the free agent market. I was a second round draft pick, so I came into the league, saw pretty good money. But that's this was my first time hitting the market. And oh by the way, when you look at the NFL, when you look at the life line in the NFL, it's extremely small. Even for high round drafted guys, even guys that are getting so like anywhere between one uh to 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 to, to three as far as rounds. It's the the, the lifespan is not long. So you don't know if you will hit free agency multiple times in your career. For all we know, if you get an opportunity to hit the free agent market at least once, you you're doing you you're doing some pretty good things. So most players see this as I might not hit free agency ever again. So when I do, I gotta try to go get every dollar that's available. Not to mention it's not a guaranteed sport. Can't contracts are not fully guaranteed in the NFL. So you don't want to miss out on an opportunity, let's say it's five or six million dollars to go elsewhere to get more, to get that extra five or six million dollars to stay where you at. And now you're looking at like, man, I might not hit free agency again. I just left six million dollars on the table to go elsewhere. So it depends on the player, depends on their situation financially and also to the timing. Got about a minute left, a little bit more, BMAC. I'm curious, what's the agent experience like during this time? Like, what was your agent doing, and how much were you guys communicating uh, during that, what, 09 season? Obviously. Yeah, we communicated a lot. I mean, anytime you saw your agent either texting your phone or calling your phone, you, you get excited. It's almost like Christmas. Like, oh, 
You got good news for me. You know, the agent is always telling you what the teams are saying. For the most part, he's not telling you the negative things that teams are saying because, you know, teams are trying to negotiate. So they're trying to find a way to get you for less than what you're asking. But he's always uh, my agent was informative as far as keeping me up to date about what was going on with me. Not to mention the other players, like I said, that were a part of that free agent class keeping me up to date about what he's hearing about this guy, especially guys that play defensive backs, you know, because it was almost a situation where you can compare and contrast. Oh, they're saying this about him or he might get this. So uh, it was a very, very exciting time, Uh, a bit nerve wracking also, because anytime money is involved, it becomes a bit nerve wracking. But it was an exciting experience for me. All right. Got to go, B-Mac. But before I let you go, just give me a name, Giannis or Harden for NBA MVP tonight. Yeah, Giannis. Giannis. Giannis, you're going with Best, the Bucks. Yeah, yeah. One one player is a one one player is a one way type of guy. The other one's other one is a two way player. Giannis, Greek freak. All right, we'll see how it goes. Two time Super Bowl champ Brian McFadden joining me here. B Max certainly appreciate it. That does it for Canel and Bell. I'm Tommy Trent. Up next, more HQ. See you soon. <laughs> 